Welcome to the Plastic Fantastic podcast, brought to you by breast and cosmetic surgeon Mr. Adrian Richards and myself, Alison Telfer, a nurse specialist in all things non-surgical. Each week we will bring to you a different guest to talk about anything that's in or around either plastic surgery or the non-surgical environment. We hope you enjoy the show. So this afternoon, myself and Alison are absolutely delighted to welcome a good friend of ours, Mark Pacifico, to the podcast, aren't we, Al? We're really delighted, and partly because we've sort of learned through our prelim chat that Mark and I have shared a couple of patients here. So really lovely to meet you, and really good to see you looking so bright and cheerful in your pink shirt. For those of you who can't see us, Mark's wearing a lovely pink shirt to cheer us up today. And looking very natty. So thanks, Mark. Thank you for having me. So, Mark, I thought we'd just start off initially, if that's okay, just by, you know, you know, credentialing you. We all know you, but some of the people out there, you know, may not have heard, heard of your name. So could you just, you know, explain what you do and how you got to where you are? So I'm a consultant plastic surgeon. I'm in full-time private practice now. Um, I have been for three years. Before that, I was a, a consultant in East Grinstead at the world-renowned Queen Victoria Hospital. I was a consultant there for eight and a half years. And... I uh, set up while I was there in parallel my own clinic, Purity Bridge, which is in Tunbridge Wells. And uh, that's where I'm based pretty well full time now. Although for bigger cases, bigger operations, I do those at the private hospitals in the area. And uh, I do a lot of uh, international speaking and uh, uh, educational work as well. I'm very involved in BARPS, British Association of Aesthetic Plastic Surgeons. Um, and uh, seem to be spinning lots of plates at any one time. You are extremely busy. I, I seem to get emails all the time about webinars or conferences or you're speaking at that. So, you know, you're, on, you're obviously in demand and, and, and travel a lot, which is, which is, which is great. Um, so where should we start, guys? Should we just tell us a bit about Purity Bridge to start off with? Uh, is, that, is that true? Yeah, so Purity Bridge, it's a clinic. I started it back in 2013, so it's been around for a little while now. And one of the reasons for starting it was, in a sense, a, a sense of frustration that within the existing structures that I had at my disposal to see my private patients, I was getting somewhat frustrated about uh, some limitation. And I wanted to deliver first-class service. I wanted to be completely autonomous and give them not only the surgical results, but the whole experience and journey that I felt was warranted and deserved. And I was somehow restricted in certain aspects of that within the confines of private hospitals. So uh, that was my impetus. And it's obviously a big responsibility when you've got your own clinic and your own business, but also has huge advantages. It gives you absolute autonomy and it enables you to really put some of the kind of fine-tuning touches on that whole patient experience that I really want people to, to have. Yeah. And you've got some good friends of ours work then, Brent Tanner and does Nora Nugent work with Yes, yes, yes. We've got a great team. We've got a great team, great nurses here as well, and uh, aesthetic physician. So, you know, it's a really nice team, and uh, patients give fantastic feedback, and it's, it, it very much feels like a growing family as we, as we move on. Yeah, And T Tunbridge Wells, for those who don't know, is also a really good area to be. You've got great private schools down there, you're commutable to London, so you've kind of got that perfect catchment, I would say, of your sort of disposable income and people who want to look after themselves. Yeah, it's, it's a lovely place to live. In fact, the, uh, 
being here was more about choosing where to live rather than before, before choosing where to open a clinic, if, if that makes sense. Uh, and we get people coming down from London through to people coming from the South Coast and actually for certain procedures from all around the country and abroad. And I believe it is, Alison, it's Royal Tunbridge Wells. <laughs> Royal, Tunbridge, Royal Tunbridge Wells, I expect Why nothing. Royal Tunbridge Wells. Why Royal? Uh, I think it was about 100 years ago. I think it was Queen Victoria who put the Royal Charter on it. Uh, I can't remember what uh, prompted her to do so, but it, it was a, a spa town. Uh, the spa's not very impressive, I must say. You don't expect anything like Bath if you come down here. It really looks like a small brain when you look at the actual spa, the actual wells. Uh, but um, it is the, the healing waters that uh, brought people down here and created the town uh, in the 1600s. Brilliant. And now, Al, I know you are very keen to know more about the lip lifts. Um, yep. And, and I think because it's a procedure that I have heard about, but I don't know a great deal about. But when I have seen, and I've certainly looked at before and afters and things, it gives a really nice result. But how did you say from going to being consultant plastic surgeon in East Grinstead to then setting up yourself, why did this lip lift thing sort of come your way? So I was introduced to it uh, some 12 years ago, towards the end of my training when I was in Australia, which was actually where lip lifts were first described. And it looked a very logical procedure to me. It's a procedure that covers a few bases. It can reduce an elongated nose to mouth distance. It can help increase the vertical pink lip height, which is something that either people have as thin anyway, or it thins with age, as does that nose to mouth distance increase with age. And then finally, one of the things that happens when we age is our lips invert. So they start to go in as well as thin and it eberts, it pulls out or almost unrolls that lip. And so it can give it a very nice shape in profile as well as improve the lower fa uh, facial thirds uh, or the, the proportions of the lower facial third. So I, I was introduced to it there, made a lot of sense, and I um, used it in some reconstructive cases initially, people who happen to have skin cancers right in the zone of the skin that would be taken out for a lip lift. It worked very nicely there. And I brought it into my practice. And I do remember one of my first aesthetic lip lift patients was someone who uh, pushed me to do it um, more than anything else. She was quite young, um, in her early 20s. She'd got a congenitally or developmentally thin upper lip. And she had tried lip fillers and they just hadn't delivered. Um, and, and interestingly, in her case, and this is a part of my practice I continue, is that if someone hasn't tried lip fillers, I would always encourage them to do so before they went for a lip lift, because at least it's reversible if you have lip filler. A lip lift is a commitment, it's surgery. Um, and this patient, I did insist that I gave her lip fillers once in case it was uh, the, how can I put it, the injector rather than the injection that was mm. the, uh, the issue. But, but I can get to change her lips as desired. And, and she had a fantastic result, actually, and uh, was absolutely delighted. And, you know, in all our practices, I think sometimes if we're cautious about introducing a, a less common procedure, it is the patients, that, patients and their feedback that really direct us into how we may take that forward. Yeah. It's quite an uncommon sort of procedure to be performed, isn't it? And could you just take us through exactly what is done in the procedure, please, Mark? 
So the, in the procedure, it's a local anaesthetic procedure. So it's all, the analogy, I, I guess, is like a trip to the dentist to have something done. Um, the skin pattern is shaped a little bit like a bull's horn or Batman, whichever you may choose. Uh, it sits under the nostrils, so the scar afterwards is hidden very neatly on that uh, nostril to upper lip junction. And then uh, a pre-planned strip of skin is removed. And then there are a lot of nuances to the technique to try and get that future scar and the lift to be as good as possible. And they have been things I've been refining and working on and, and, and learning from colleagues in different countries about to try and improve. And the surgery on the inside actually almost goes down to the, uh, the pink white lip junction. And um, there's a lot of very uh, secure stitches that need to be placed to ensure that the lift is anchored. And also, very importantly, it doesn't distort the nose. Because when I audited my results, it's quite interesting, a quarter, 25% of all my lip lift patients had previously had a rhinoplasty. And uh, I thought that was interesting. And what it seems is that for a lot of people, when they have a nose job or a rhinoplasty, and then the nose is elevated a bit, it correspondingly it increases the length of the upper lip, which some people clearly notice and, and, and may bother them. And an elongated upper lip is a sign of ageing, isn't it? The lip tends to elongate and go down as you get older. It's amazing how rejuvenating these procedures can be. Yeah. So with that then, Mark, I'm just thinking, so it, it is, you get that heart sink moment when a lady comes, I'm naturally very lucky, I've got good lips, they're, they're mine. So I am, but you know, it's that heart sink moment when someone walks in with really thin sort of spaghetti type lips and says to me, I'd like to have them just like yours. And I kind of get that moment of going, I do think over time you can really slowly improve it. But I think you're right. If there's flat, if the filtering's flat and there's nothing there, it's really hard. So would you do the lip lift and then contour the lip to create a shape with fillers to do a vermilion border? Because sometimes they're just very flat. Well, I, I think it's... It's really interesting what you say. I think you're absolutely right. Trying to get that vertical height can be really difficult in those very thin lips. And certainly I, I, I'd approach that with a, an injection from the top down with filler rather than along the lip to try and achieve that vertical height to start with. I think the lip lift can shape the lip beautifully. You can get a really nice Cupid's bow shape with a lip lift. But I always say to people, I actually had two lip lift consultants, uh, consultations this morning. And with both of them, I, I do talk about a lip lift potentially being viewed as changing your starting position in order that future filler can be used in smaller quantities for more sort of nuanced adjustments, whether that's in shape or, or perhaps to try and Im improve the lip near the, near the corners of the mouth where a lip lift may have little or no effect. Yeah. And Mark, how much skin are you typically removing and how do the scars look? Okay, so as a rule of thumb, around a third of the distance between the nose and the mouth. If you, if you remove less, you get the scar for no real advantage. If you remove more, you get the risk, or an increasing risk of porous scars, particularly around the nostrils. In my experience, the scars between the nostrils are nearly always really good, really, really good. The variation tends to be in the scars around the nostrils because of the way you're fitting the jigsaw back together effectively. You've got a, a, a two, two, uh, two wounds of different lengths that you're trying to uh, marry together. So if you don't take too much and you get good support from those anchoring stitches we talked about, 
then actually I think you can get a really, really lovely scar, a really good scar. Um, uh, of course, there are other things that contribute to scar formation. It could be someone's ethnic background or genes. It could be early exposure to sunlight that can cause pigments on the scar. So that I'm very, very emphatic about scar care after lip lifts because I'm so aware this is a scar in the middle of your face and you want that scar to be as good as possible. Yeah, but it's hidden in the fold. So you, you do exactly, it's hidden in the nooks and crannies, a natural junction between nose and mouth. Yeah. So, Mark, I think you may be in danger of um, getting to more patients than you can treat. Because uh, it's a very common problem and there's not many people offering a solution. Would you agree, Al? Yeah, definitely. And I think, I mean, you're making it sound like, I think I'd rather have a lip lift than go to the dentist any day. But I think it is, and I think it's, it's one of those lovely subtleties that I'm sure just makes a real difference. But it's kind of, it's, it's something that you wouldn't necessarily recognize. You think, oh, I definitely need that. But it does just sort of make that difference. What about if someone, you know how sometimes you see people who have very heavy lips, they're just either more, more fleshy or they've had them overfilled or anything like that. How does that work with those? I think that's, that's a really interesting question because I think we, we've all been, uh, we're all aware of seeing those slightly rubbery, thickened upper lips. And often I think that's when someone's had too much filler because the practitioners tried to fill every single small vertical line, perhaps multiple times. And I think that's very hard to, to thin down. Um, I, I think the, uh, I, I don't have a magic solution for thinning down an overfilled upper lip. I think the one very basic thing we can do before any lip lift is, is simulate it, either with fingers or cotton buds, lifting approximately from that, that distance that we talked about, a third of the way down, upwards. Um, but I, I, and I think it's very important to, um, to, to have that, a look at that person's lip from different angles as well, because as you say, we talked about the shape before, and if someone's got an overly filled or thickened fleshy upper lip, you don't want to um, exacerbate that appearance or make it look even more unusual. Yeah. Difficult problem. Okay, so that's lip lips. That's lip lifts. So where are we going to, uh, which part of the anatomy would you like to move to? to now so i know you were an early proponent of smooth breast implants mark mm. um went a bit against the flow with that but have since been proved um sort of correct so could you talk us through that a little bit well it's interesting again i have to thank my time in australia for this because as you know in the uk smooth implants were just not something used some years ago and actually when in australia my colleagues there heard that i'd never seen a smooth implant uh, use at the time, uh, literally one of them turned around to me and said, well, are you living in the dark ages? And uh, the rationale then was very much an aesthetic rationale, partly how they felt, partly how they behaved, because there's potentially less rippling uh, seen in, because there's no adherence of the implant inside the breast, it moves around a little bit. That can cause some issues, but it can be beneficial to, for some people. And also that classic image that we all think of, uh, let's say topless sunbathers lying on the beach and everyone's saying, oh, we can spot the, those with breast implants because they're sticking straight up. Well, one of the things that a smooth implant does is it behaves, I think, a bit more naturally. When someone lies down, it does spread out a little bit more and move a little bit more laterally, as long as it's not too lateral, which 
can itself be a problem. So I think they can behave very naturally and they can solve some problems that other that, that may occur in, in the more commonly used textured implants. And of course, um, since, uh, well, since maybe four or five years ago, we've become much more aware of ALCL, so a very rare but very crucially important uh, cancer of the immune system, uh, anaplastic glass cell lymphoma, that to date has not been associated with any smooth implants on their own. Uh, it tends to be associated with a macro texture course in textured implants. So it's now, there's, a, there's a, an aesthetic and a, and a functional rationale for using them. I don't only use them, but I do use them in probably 80% of my patients. Remember, why wouldn't sorry? Why wouldn't you being not? Why wouldn't you use them then? Okay, so the other alternative that I would use is a, an anatomical shaped implant, and the great advantage of that in certain people is that you can alter the height and width of the implant because it's not round, as well as the fact that the shape means that the. I hope I'm not going to go too technical here, but the point of maximal projection where the implant sticks out the most is down towards the bottom of the implant. Mm. You can actually use that shape to your advantage to help change the shape of certain breasts. So if someone's developed a breast that is, uh, let's say, um, got a slightly low nipple or a very wide breast that's quite short height that's not going to look great with a round implant because it would, it would just look quite unnatural with a round implant, you can exploit those sort of features of a... Yeah. An anatomical implant to change the shape of that breast, as, as well as use the anatomical implant for other reasons. Yeah. So basically, Mark, I think I'm right on this. The first implants were smooth silicone implants in the 60s. They had a liquid gel, thin wall, prone to rupture, smooth. Then they moved on to textured implants uh, because the texture was thought to reduce the capsule rate. So the fur yeah, and, the and also to try and, um, at the time, they had problems because the first implants were smooth, but also shaped and anatomical. So they had problems with the implants rotating. Yeah, so they're so, like, like a Velcro on the outside. So they would sit where they were put. Yes. Then they thought about anatomical implants, which is shaped like a teardrop. But the problem is the gel has to be very firm in them. Yes. The shape, so they're hard. Um, in the UK, there was a very there was a study, wasn't there, which showed that the capsule rate was lower with textured implants. That's why we tended to use those. In America, they tended to be smooth, but more recently, we've gone back to smooth or narrow. I, yeah. I, I sort of interrupt, um, but I, I think you know. The, funny enough, I'm giving a, a talk about my education. Like I'm giving a, a debate webinar tomorrow or, or Friday about the whole this whole mm -hmm. debate. But a lot of the evidence people are still quoting about the capsule formation, capsule contracture, comes from the 90s, yes. uh, 20 years old. And how we do breast implants and breast augmentation surgery now is a world away from how it was done 20 years ago. Yep. And the surgical techniques are so much more refined, uh, more meticulous. And, and I certainly think there's good evidence that a big part of the contributory factor to capsule contracture is, is us as surgeons and what we do at the time of original surgery, which is why overall capsule contracture rates are so much lower now than they used to be back then. And in fact, those studies that were looking at capsule contracture rates and smooth versus textured could only do so because their rates were so high, it didn't take them many patients to look at these differences. Now we need 10 times as many patients to look at those nuanced differences. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely agree. So things go, things change, don't they, and, and, and improve, but still go round in circles. As yeah. they improve. 
what other areas so so you so barps is a big part of your life i know and education is a big part of your life Bart. so so can you explain to everyone what barps is and why it's called barps so barps is the our national aesthetic society so it's the british association of aesthetic plastic surgeons and we those of us who are involved on the council we it's a non-remunerated role, so we do it. We give up our own time, uh, and it's there. The principal aims as a charity is for surgical education and patient safety. Um, so, for the last three years, I've I've organised national meetings, and it's been it's something I've wanted to do because it's been like a I don't know a kid in a sweet shop when I've looked at who I want to invite from around the world to speak over in the UK and to to be able to invite them over and. And, and have a chat to them and, in, uh, and quiz them on, on their thoughts. Um, uh, but it's involved in, in many other things, but certainly the educational side is, is what I've been uh, very, very keen who, on. Who are the star people you've had over? Oh, gosh. Too many to really... Well, Graham Southwick, of course, who we both know from, from Melbourne. Um, we've had uh, oh, a whole host of uh, people. Uh, this year we had... Uh, Alex Azulani from Spain, we had Dan Del Vecchio from the States, we've had uh, Doug Steinbrick, Heather Furness. There are a lot of kind of world leading. Uh, I guess the highlight this year may have been Alfredo Hoyos from Colombia, who's uh, internationally famous body contouring surgeon. There's some great facelift surgeons uh, uh, year before last, where we had Daniel Labbe from France. And, sorry, you can see I'm going to go on about that. But we've had some fantastic speakers. Yeah. I always love the talks. They have these brilliant talks. Um, one guy, I think it was Rod, Rod, Rod Rorich, he's a very famous plastic surgeon. I don't know if you were there, Mark. He, gave, he was in Dallas Memorial Hospital when JF Kennedy came in, JFK, after he'd been shot. And he was a young guy, young surgeon, now he's a senior guy. But he was saying, he gave a talk and he said, you're not allowed to give this talk in America. Yeah, so he gave it to us. It was all about the angle of the bullets and what was done with the body. It was re really interesting. And um, they had uh, Michael Portillo one year. Yes. Yeah, so it, it's great. It's great. It's very interesting. Um, yes. Who did you have? Who, who did you have? Were you organising this year? No, this year I've handed over the baton to actually my colleague Nora. Uh, and uh, Nora and Dan Marsh are going to organise it this year. Whether it happens or it happens in a different form this year, we don't really know because of um, uh, events. Uh, but uh, we've got, uh, they've got a great lineup of speakers planned that I've uh, had a privy to already. Yeah, so yeah, a little look before. Um, and um, what is the ethos of Barbs? What, so you have to, to be, how do you get in? What do you have to do to be a member? Yeah, so I, I think it's what, the ethos is certainly one of the standards for, of safety and outcome. So you can only be a member if you've uh, reached a certain level of qualification, you've got your consultant level exams, you're on the UK specialist register, I guess what would be uh, board certified equivalents in America. And um, you have to be nominated and seconded by colleagues. So it is uh, something that uh, I think by by virtue of that, uh, should um, uphold those standards and, and continue those sorts of standards. Then how many, so, so to do it, you have to, you have to submit your uh, logbook, don't you? Yeah? On an annual basis. And, and how many members are there? There are about 350 members now. So it's grown a fair amount. I think it was only a few years ago, there were 200, 250. 
Yeah. And what's very exciting, there are a lot of um, trainee members, which is a new, um, uh, a new initiative. And it shows there's a lot of uh, interest and drive from the trainees to, to uh, pursue aesthetic surgery, which I, I think is great because we need young people having interest early so they can become experts yeah. rather than try and just move into it sideways later on. Right, Mark, we're going to get controversial here. Yeah? So, sure. yeah. can what do you have to call yourself a plastic surgeon in the UK? What do you have to be? Uh, that's, well, you said plastic surgeon, so you, to call yourself a plastic surgeon, you have to be on the GMC specialist register as a plastic surgeon. And how, do you get, only, how do you get on that? They can only do that by having your official training complete and then having your usually your FRCS plus qualification exam and then uh, completing your CCT, having a certificate of completion of training uh, and those criteria. So how many years and how many exams do you have to do to be a plastic surgeon? Far too long. And to be honest, I think it is too long. But in the UK, we have an incredibly long. I mean, if I look at me, I had six years at medical school. I had a year as a, as a houseman, three years as an SHO, two years as a research registrar completing yeah. my doctorate, another five or six years as a registrar, and then I became a consultant. So 18 years or so. Sorry, and you had to do a PhD. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I did a doctorate, yeah. Yeah, to be a plastic surgeon. How much time do you have to do to call yourself a cosmetic surgeon? It's pretty well overnight, isn't it? It's not very much. To be, if you're going to be a cosmetic surgeon, you're going to be qualified for medical school. Uh, literally, there is no definition of this cosmetic surgeon, so people will label themselves that straight out of uh, qualification. The Plastic Fantastic podcast is brought to you in conjunction with the Glasshouse Clinic and Cosmetic Courses. Cosmetic Courses is the number one UK training company in aesthetics for doctors, dentists and nurses. It's been leading the way and it's the longest established cosmetic courses training centre for all things non-surgical. The Glasshouse Clinic has been open 12 years, it's grown rapidly, it's won awards, it's privately owned. So if you're in South London or anywhere in the UK and you're interested in learning more about facial rejuvenation or body sculpting, give the Glasshouse Clinic a call. Yeah, so in, in America and Australia, there's a lot of, you know, it says check, there's a big advert that says it takes 15 years to become board certified. It takes 10 seconds to check whether your surgeon is board certified. Yes. So Alan, were you aware of the difference between cosmetic no, I wasn't. I guess the only thing that I was aware of, we talked about this when we were talking about facelift surgeons things, about how to how do you find someone who's good, how do you find someone who's reputable, do you just follow them from a marketing point of view and all this kind of, and you were sort of saying if you're looking for someone, then looking here or checking if someone is certified, then that's the right thing to do. But that's the hard thing in London, England, full stop. I mean it's the same with non-surgical people setting themselves up, they call themselves this, they call themselves that. It's, it's just a sort of, it's part of the nature of the game. People are always going to try and take shortcuts. But I think the interesting thing about you saying about the young trainees or sort of coming through, Barks, is that the problem when you get to your point in your career, Mark, is you've got a really big successful clinic, you've got a really good teaching place, you've got a really, you end up, people think that 
all of your adopter, your adopter, I mean, but that's what we are. But that is only one third of our profession, really, because the other of it is made up with all of these ancillary things. And that's why it's almost a victim of it's, a, it's sort of a vicious circle. You need it where people aren't quite so successful because they've got more time on their hands. But the ones that are super successful, you want to hear them because they've got there because they're good at it. It's just that vicious circle. I know. I, I think it's really difficult for the public. I mean, I, I, I looked at, um, I, uh, it, it's whether you need a, a plumber or a builder. If you don't know where to start, the, the next, you can either go to Google and then you're at the mercy of whoever's spending the most on Google ads or search engine optimization. You could ask a friend or you could go onto a forum. And it's interesting that it, that's, I feel that it must be so challenging for a member of the public who, doesn't know of anyone to ask, you know, where do you start? Mm. I, um, it, it's, it's, not, it's not easy. And, and I think, Adrian, your point about the um, messaging and the advertising from the American College, uh, or the American Society, um, Barb's have tried that in the past, and it's just been such a difficult message to communicate. It's, it's not, it, it, it's, it's the right message, it's a, the kind of worthy, safe message, but it doesn't seem to get absorbed out there. And survey after survey shows that the majority of people will pick their surgeon through a combination of price, internet or Instagram type presence and other markers that are really, you, you know, frightening when you, when you think, when you're, when you're in the business and you realize how it's happening. So by that virtue, I think it's beholden on those of us who have done all the things that Alison was just saying, that, you know, we, it, I won't say if you can't beat them, join them, but we need to be there. If we're not present on social media, if we're not present on the internet, we're not going to be able to compete. And only by being there and hopefully demonstrating our results and showing that we are giving educational talks, that we're sought after as experts here and there, that we then start to be able to differentiate ourselves out there on that playing field that the others are on already. Yeah. So do you think plastic surgeons were a little bit slow to get in? I mean, we know people, don't we, Mark, who don't know what Instagram is? Yeah, um, it's, I, I find it extraordinary. I think, um, and it's not only in, this, in the UK, I think in the UK there is a, probably at one end of the spectrum, but there are a lot of people who are very uh, wary of social media or scared by it. I think there, I remember when I, I was, I uh, was appointed in 2009 as a consultant. And I, um, one of the first things I was doing was setting up my first website. And I did it on, a, on my computer, homemade website. If, you know, because I, I hadn't started earning any money, I thought, let me just get something out there. And when some of my colleagues heard that I had got a website out, they were shocked by it. Yeah. I mean, I find that, you know, extraordinary. And that wasn't that long ago. Plenty of people had websites. But I just like to say, but what the difference is and what we mustn't forget is that, you know, 11 years ago, when, you know, the reality is you went into medical school to be a doctor, and get, you know, a doctor perhaps in the NHS or whatever it was. You didn't, and within your medical training, it's the same with nurse training, there is no business acumen training. And also the business world is a very different business world to when we did go to university anyway. I mean, I don't think there was the, there wasn't the internet when we went to university. So it's just such a different place. And that is though what sets people apart, I think, is whether you 
can run it as a business, but not lose sight of what we first came into this for. But I, I think you're right. And I think it's, some people do phenomenally well, but you know, they're based on shallow foundations, but mm. because they've got this Instagram following, they've built their business on that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what's interesting is a big Instagram following, uh, you know, being what good at social media could sort of replace all those years you did training, Mark. Yeah, and it's extraordinary. Um, when you look at, uh, also what I find quite interesting is there seems to be almost an increasing amount of credibility given to people with, or surgeons who've got a, above a certain number of followers. And I also think either they've got to have be spending a fair amount of money on the machinery or a fair, uh, to, to, to get that, or a fair amount of time. And it kind of comes back to what you were saying, Alison. If, if you've got more time on your hands, you're probably not doing much surgery and things because there are only so many hours in the day, so many balls yeah. juggling keep in the air. And, and it's time consuming doing social media. It really is, um, depending on how much you're doing. Or, or it's time consuming, or, it's, or, or you... Uh, can uh, obviously uh, employ others to help support you on that. And I do know um, of, uh, of more than a couple of colleagues who don't have busy practices, but if you looked at their social media following, you would think, wow, they, you know, how do they have time to, to, to see any patients because they look like they're bursting the seams with uh, operating and things. But you know, knowing behind the scenes, it's not always the case. That shop window isn't truly reflected of what's going on in the back. Yeah, so you're sort of good at both, if you don't mind me saying, Mark. You, you've, you've, you, well, you're the traditional sort of surgeon, kind of the traditional route, but you've opened a clinic, which is slightly unusual, and you're quite good at all the social media marketing side of it. So you, you sort of seemed, how many people like you are there in the UK? <laughs> Sorry, very flashing of you to say. Can I just, just touch on the social media side? because. Um, what I've, my, my prime kind of goal with social media is patient education. So, of course, that comes in many forms. It's before and after photos, but also talking through what I do quite a lot of, as I know you do, um, talking through operations and saying, you know, this is you know, with a warning slide so people aren't suddenly uh, yeah. seeing the inside of a breast or something. But to say, look, this is why we're doing it. This is or a tummy tuck, this is, this is what separated muscles look like before and after I've repaired them, and this is the difference it makes when we feel them. And I think, I, I, I actually send all my patients after their first consultation to my Instagram as part of their educational process before their second consultation, and almost, you know, universally, they are very sort of uh, grateful for it, and they say, now I understand what you're talking about. It was all a bit abstract before in my head, but now I've seen these muscles separated. Now I know what that, what that looks like. Yeah, I do the same, actually. So I sometimes have the, the Instagram is almost like a photo gallery. So yeah. I say, well, look, here's a tuberous breast. This is what it looks like. And yours are good because it says warning graphic content, doesn't it? Yeah. You have to. Did you see, though, did you do see Dr. Subio? I don't know if you follow him. He is fantastic. And he posted one. You know where you have that warning graphic content? He posted one the other day and it said, warning, astonishingly handsome man coming up. And it was that. But I think also the lovely thing about it is, you know, years ago, it's not quite the same for a variety of reasons, but years ago, you know, the doctor was held up here and the patient was down here. 
and you know the patient didn't ask questions and you certainly didn't challenge and you didn't question someone's qualifications and things and i think what instagram allows people to do is get to know you not just the man that they've come in for their concert because that can be quite intimidating sometimes yeah. and it's a stepping stone yeah. yeah and excuse me for saying it right um alison you run two very successful clinics is that true yeah, I know what he's going to say. Yeah. But my social media is crap. Is that what you're going to say? Well, I was Well, is it? Well, what do you think it is? Yeah, it is. And I'll tell you why. Because, well, pre lockdown, Adrian is, pre lockdown, we had 300 followers for the Glass House, which is appalling because, you know, I've been going home for many years. We now have nearly 1,100 in the lockdown. And that's purely because I've just been making videos and doing things like that. I don't know, I've never been personally that interested in social media. And it's a little bit like I was never, for example, I'm not personally interested in having a boob job, sorry chats. So therefore I don't really know much about boob jobs, I don't go looking for boob jobs. So because I wasn't particularly interested, but then with the lockdown, a bit more time on my hands, a bit bored, a bit bored, I thought I'll to get onto the social media thing. And I think that's it, I think, but I do, but it has made a massive difference. So I'm just a slow one coming to the game. What I think is really interesting about the social media is that the patient inquiries I get through social media, I, funny enough, I think, how can I put it? I want to say this carefully. I would say better, very good quality. Because, more directed. Well, they're more, yeah, exactly. Because yeah. they've, they've spent time looking. They, they, they've sort of appreciated uh, the, the limitations. They've read, the, read your, watched your videos, watched the posts, and they, they've selected you. And they've actually done a lot of due diligence on you, more than they could have done previously. And I think certainly for, for surgical procedures, which are, uh, I think, more of a, an investment in all manner, psychologically as well as financially and risk-related, you know, they really want to find the right surgeon mm -hmm. they feel is their fit. And I, I get... I get messages quite frequently saying, I'm not ready yet, but I know you're the person I want to come to for my tummy tuck or for my, you know, asymmetry correction or whatever it might be. Do you ever get, I get, so I, I started doing YouTube videos years and years ago, a bit like you, Mark. Yeah. remember on my computer and, um, at night. And I think we've had three, 35 million views of my rubbishy little videos. And the ones I did 15 years ago are still, I, I, you can see pictures of me, no grey hair, no wrinkles. <laughs> it's a bit depressing looking at the old videos. But people used to say, I don't know whether you get this, Mark, people come in and say, like, I feel like I know you. Yes. Like, yeah. That. yeah. Yeah. So that's, yeah. The, that's the due diligence bit. People have been doing their research. Yeah. I, I, it as I, Alison, you were saying as well, it personalises you. It, it, it's, a, it's a smaller step for them to take. It's a daunting prospect coming to see any of us. It's less daunting if you feel you've got to know that person and maybe even had the odd message with them beforehand. Then there's, you know, the barriers have come down a little bit. Yeah, I think one problem is you. You noticed this, Al, didn't you? When you weren't doing your own social media, it wasn't as good as when you invested the time. You, people want to see you, not a sort of corporate version of your clinic. Yeah, and I'm very lucky. So we have the glass house one, and then I have set up a new one recently, just as a separate one. And um, but I'm really the girl who looks after that. It's a bizarre. She writes posts, and it says she's worked with me for a long time. It's as if I've written them. It's really bizarre. You know, they're slightly quirky from time to time. So like, just getting back, Adrian. <laughs> I just I just say I want to sort of um, just 
people who are listening, when you talked about making videos late at night on your laptop, they yeah. were educational videos, weren't they, Adrian? Uh, yeah, yeah, they were, yeah. <laughs> they, were, they were pretty boring. Well, uh, you, they wouldn't be very exciting. And I think you're right, actually, Al. If you, I suppose if you're not interested in breast surgery, if you, if you don't, you're interested in things that are relevant to you, aren't you? And are relevant yes. to your practice. So if you're not, if you haven't got an issue with your breast, you're not interested in that area. You, you, you won't be interested. The social media lets you sort of dive in deep. And like your um, lip lift mark, I think, is a, is a, is a case in point. Absolutely. I think you're going to get more and more patients uh, looking for that type of surgery. Um, so, guys, so Mark, another question for you. So, what's next? So, do you mind me asking roughly how old you are? Oh, I can tell you, I'm 46. So, you're 46. You've achieved, you became a consultant at the age of 35. Yes. I was young, so I was 38. So, yeah, so you're a young consultant. You've done an awful lot Got in 12 years. Got the gold medal as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> What's that? Gold medal. <laughs> oh, I came top in the UK in uh, the consultant uh, exams. It's a very big thing. So, out of all the uh, plastic surgeons who take the exam in a year, well, they don't even give it. In my year, they didn't even give it, actually. It's a failed year. <laughs> Bad year. Um, but you got the gold medals, which is the best plastic surgeon coming through that year. Yeah. That's amazing. Where's your medal, Mark? It's gathering dust in a drawer at home. Do you actually get a medal? Do you actually get a medal? Yeah. It's not gold, though. <laughs> well, a gold medal winner. Have you got any medals, Al? Pardon? Have, Have I got any medals? No. Only from doing my Santa dash at Christmas time. Yeah. So, anyway, Mark, what's next for you? So you think oh gosh that's that's a good question i, I think I, i'm one of the things i'm toying with is expanding the capabilities that I, what, what i can do under my roof in um in, in the clinic because I, I think that the direction of travel in the uk is in the private sector is quite interesting i think the uh private hospitals clearly have their agendas of course they would they've got their businesses but I think that the um, risks to those of us who rely on third parties effectively to perform most of our work is that we're not in control and we are beholden to their decisions. So, uh, uh, you know, an example is if we need operating space, yeah, we yeah. don't automatically necessarily have it at our fingertips. There's a negotiation and there's some decisions that are not in our control. Al, here's a question for you, okay? How much does a hip replacement cost? To have it done or to physically do it? To have it done. 15,000, 20,000? 15,000, yeah. How much does the hip replacement tin bit cost? It'll either be not a lot or a lot. Let's yeah. go for, I don't know actually, maybe a thousand pounds? Yes, there's different ones. How much does the surgeon like get paid? Like a quiz, go on. Yeah, how much does the surgeon get paid for doing a hip replacement? If, the, if, if it costs you, say, £15,000. If it's private? Yeah. So a third of the money will go to the hospital for the hospital, I thought. He'll probably get out of 15 grand, I reckon he'll walk away with about six or seven. What's the answer, Mark? 
Well, it's 700 quid, isn't it? Yes. No. No. You boys are in the wrong game. You want to start trying to do a bit of Botox. <laughs> so, for, for, so for the surgeon doing the hip replacement, he gets £700 out of 15000 That's the point that Mark was making about the hospitals. And a lot of the hospitals are doing, um, after COVID, are committed to NHS work, aren't they, Mark? Or the backlog. So is it going to be difficult for surgeons to get facilities? It's going to be very difficult, isn't it? I think, you know, we're not, uh, we're not the priority and we're not, as I talked about, their agendas and their, uh, their goals. I think we're, uh, particularly as plastic surgeons, at, at the back of the queue. So it may be difficult. To, for, 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 there may not be just enough operating slots for plastic surgery moving forward. Yeah, I mean, I think also, I think there are some interesting uh, points about us being locked out of being able to provide care for our patients, which I feel very strongly about. And the number of people, as I'm sure the same is uh, with your practice, Adrian, the number of people I've got constantly phoning or emailing saying, when can we have our operation? At the moment, I've got a, an increasing list of people awaiting surgery. Adding, I'm adding to it every day. I'm seeing people every day, virtually, um, at the moment. But it's um, something that uh, it, it's that it feels very frustrating not to have the control over that. So I think we are finally, and I say finally because it's something that I've been thinking about for many years, as a country, certainly as plastic surgeons, going to follow the examples in Australia and America and having many more independent clinics that are more capable of performing uh, more surgery uh, to different extents. Sometimes it will only be local anaesthetics, sometimes with twilight anaesthesia, and sometimes there'll be, I think, well, I know I've already colleagues of ours who are developing their own mini hospitals with one or two operating theatres to do everything everything in our remit. Um, so, I mean, so we've got a friend, haven't we, Jack, uh, who's opened a, a hospital on the south coast, Mark. Yes. You know who I'm talking about. I do. In the, in the, in the West Country. Yes, in Noel Edmonds' old um, house. Yes, that's right. And um, he set up a lovely hospital, um, but I think he's found it difficult because hospitals are difficult to run without so so you've done well I think Mark to have business acumen as well because many well how, how have you found that how have you found you, you know I think it, it is difficult and I, all three of us we are um, employers and employees we are working in the business as well as trying to work on the business and I think it can be very challenging to find the time and the, and the headspace to work on the business because it's so important to have that time that looks like free time in your diary because you're not seeing patients or not operating or not doing procedures. But actually, that, that's crucial. You can't start take a step back. I mean, the analogy I'd, I'd, I'd give is if you look at any company from, I don't know, Marks and Spencers through to Apple or whatever, the people at the top aren't there selling the products or making the products. They're working on the business, making decisions. We're all juggling both hats at the same time and um, I think that that in itself I think is one of the biggest challenges and I think that's been very interesting having a bit more time uh, in uh, in the re in the last couple of months to not be able to see patients in a way and to have a chance to look at systems processes protocols and realize for me how much more efficient we could be so do you think we could get to a stage where so 
Mark, you've you've refined your technique, your lip lift technique. You can only perform a certain amount a year. Al, you are brilliant at doing lips, but you can only do a certain amount a year and facial contouring. Could it be that you train people very specifically to do things your way and monitor them and measure them and audit things, but you do less yourself, but the Mark Pacifico and Alison Telfer techniques are offered to more people. Is that possible? It's the Tony and Guy model, isn't it? You don't go to get your hair cut and expect to see, well, not these days anyway, but in the past, you would expect to see Tony or Guy, but you'd go there as a brand of a certain level of expectation. I think one of the differences though, and Alison, I'd be interested to hear your perspective on this, is I found that very difficult. I think what we're doing is so personal and such a people's business that I found it very hard to scale things and say to patients, you could, you know, you could see me, but actually I've trained my colleague here and you could see them and they'll do a great job. I say, no, no, but I want to see you because your name's, you know, at the top of the headed paper or whatever. I mean, Alison, do you find that? I think it is really hard, but I think I think it's achievable to a point. So when I first opened the clinic, you know, one minute I was lasering underarms, the next minute I was Botox, the next minute I was filling. And then over the years, I've obviously got staff and got staff. And now, you know, there are certain treatments I just don't do. I just don't do. The girls do them or the other nurse do them, the team do them. And what I tend to say to patients is, and it is different, but I will say to the patients, listen, you do not want me to switch that laser on. I have no idea what setting to put it on. And, you know, I'll probably burn you before I've even started. So, but I do think it is really difficult, but I think there are certain things, and it's the same with you, Adrian, there are certain things, it only comes, as you always give the analogy, when you've done 10,000 hours of doing something, you know the nuances, the idiosyncrasies and all of that, and that is why you will always do it slightly different to however you've trained it. I think it's, it's the nature of our beast. The reality is we've become successful because we are who we are and then we complain about it because we want someone else to do it. And we've got to go. We've been chitter-chattering too long. Mark, it's been absolutely fascinating. I think we could talk all day. Um, don't you think? Absolutely. I do. When the t- lockdown's all over, Adrian and I are going to do a world tour and go and visit <laughs> everyone that we've been interviewed. And um, welcome to Tunbridge Wells. We can come see your drain in Tunbridge Wells and how we're going to heal. Yeah, Royal Tunbridge Wells. And Mark, before you go, can you just tell us something outside of work? Ooh. You know, what, you know, do you have any time outside work for things? You know, I've got three small boys. And they dominate my time out of work. They are the best thing and the most exhausting thing at the same time in life. Brilliant. How old are they? Uh, 11, 8 and 4. Fantastic. Well, brilliant. Guys, Mark, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it, uh, fitting us in your busy schedule. And I'll send my lip lifts down your way. <laughs> That's Thanks, guys. Thank See you. Bye.